Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1 to uh, 6, where we read, or 1 to 5, where we read this evening, we're going to see the next episode in this very early part of church history. You know, Christ's church is made up of all sorts of people, strange people. I told you last week that a friend of mine had told me I was weird, Christian friend. I didn't try to disagree with her. But the church is made up of all sorts of people, and some of us are weirder than others. And others of us are probably quite normal. Did you ever see a man building a dry stone wall out in the country, maybe up in the Mourns, where there's dry stone walls stretching for miles and miles? It's really an art. It's not just you just don't grab a load of stones and pile them up in a heap and hope that there's a wall comes out of it. You'll see the man lifting the stone. And every stone is measured by his expert eye. And a place is found for it. And he gradually fits them in so that those walls will stand for generation after generation. Even though there's no cement used. Even though they're just wedged into place. The dry stone wallers are so expert that the wall is perfectly fitted together out of stones that are totally different. Christ is building his church. And Peter says that we are the stones that will build up the church. And sometimes people are so different in culture and in personality types and, dare I say it, in political opinions and so on, that to meld them into a united assembly is like trying to make a dry stone wall, humanly speaking. That's why it's so important for us to remember that it is Christ who is building the church and not us. He said, on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So now with Paul's first missionary journey completed and new churches established all the way through Asia Minor, what we nowadays call Turkey, it's not very long before a huge controversy arises. Uh, I cannot stress the importance of this enough. This part of chapter 15 is set in the town of Antioch in back in Syria, in Palestine, where Paul and Barnabas are based and where they have been giving their report to the church about how the Gentiles have been responding to the word of God preached and how many, many of the Gentiles have trusted in Christ. They have met the Lord and they have been wonderfully converted. They are Christians They are members of the church of God. They have been brought savingly into the kingdom of God through trusting in Christ alone. So now there's two different groups of Christians meeting together. There are Christians who come from a Jewish background 
who are saved by grace through faith. And there are Christians who have come from a Gentile background who are saved by grace through faith. And both these groups are Christians. And both of them are followers of Jesus. And both of them are saved by grace alone. So what's the problem? Well, there's a historic problem. The problem with Jews and Gentiles. Um, Chapter 15 begins, Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you can't be saved. Those people can't be saved. Sure they can't. They can't be. You've got to understand the historic hostility that occurred between Jews and Gentiles. Suppose nowadays these Jews would have been accused of racism. One of the things that a Jewish man prayed when he stood to pray, I think I've mentioned this before, is that he would say, God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile or a slave or a woman. And that's uh, I think nowadays that prayer would be extremely politically incorrect, incorrect indeed. A lot of talk about this kind of thing recently, isn't it? According to something called critical race theory, all white people are racist. Did you know that? Um, in fact, over the summer months of this year, MPs in the House of Commons were all ordered to go on a course to learn why they are suffering from unconscious bias. Apparently, white people are the problem. They're all racist, even when they think they're not. Now, that nonsense all comes from America. Not surprised, a few years ago, well, at the turn of the century, we visited New Orleans. And we were staying in a hotel in the outskirts of the city, and we travelled into the town centre on a public bus. And the only people on the public bus who weren't black people was me and my wife. And on one trip back to the hotel from the city centre, a very strange man came and stood beside me and loomed right over the seat and stood with his face six inches from my nose and with me having an aversion to anybody being close to me anyway, that was bad enough. But he looked extremely threatening. And I had my wallet and I had a camera in the case beside me. And... But at the next bus stop, the bus pulled up at the stop and some people got on and some people got off and the bus driver pulled on the handbrake and he got out of his cab, black man, and he came down to the seat and he pointed to us and he said, you too, you sit over there. And he made us sit in a seat right beside him. And we were thinking afterwards, You know, we had no problem getting on the bus. It seemed that the problem was with everybody else on the bus. They didn't want white people on their bus. I want to use that as an illustration because the mindset of a Jew was that he was part of a special race of people. He was different to everybody else and he didn't want anyone else anywhere near him. He didn't want to have fellowship with anyone. If they'd had buses in those days, he wouldn't have wanted a Gentile on the bus. They said, they thought they were chosen by God 
chosen to be the recipients of his love and his special grace, chosen to be the racial group through whom the Messiah would come into the world. That, of course, should have made them very humble, very grateful that a pathetic group of worthless slaves should be so greatly favoured. But instead of humility, the Jews reacted to their elect status with pride. To quote one commentator, the Jews had the mistaken notion that not only were they the particular possession of God, but that God was the particular and peculiar possession of the Jews. Now, in practice, that worked out in that a strict Jew would not even have a conversation with a Gentile would not have him as a guest in his home, would never go to visit the home of a Gentile. As far as he could, a strict Jew would avoid any business transactions with a Gentile. Now, here's the problem. Can't you see it right away? In this brand new church right across Asia Minor, there's Jews and there's Gentiles. Both of them are Christians. But historically, people who were of the racial group of Judea, people who were racially Jews, would have no social interaction whatsoever with people who were racially Gentiles. So the question then arises, how can Jews and Gentiles unite together in the church, especially in local assemblies? in far-off towns where there'll only be one church gathering. So here's the solution. A group of people came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch is the base where Paul and Barnabas set out. Antioch is the place where they go from to preach to the Gentiles. At Antioch, Jews and Gentiles are worshipping together in the church. And the proposed solution seems simple and straightforward enough. Since the Jews are God's chosen people, since the Gentile Christians are coming into the covenant people of God, here's the solution. It's quite simple. All of you become Jews. That solves it, doesn't it? If the racial tension is there, if the Jews can't accept that they should talk to Gentiles, and yet now they've got to regard Gentiles as their brothers and sisters in Christ, the very simple fact is that solve the problem straight away, become Jews. And that would involve circumcision, Acts 15 and verse 1. Certain men which came down from Judea Taught the brethren, said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And it involved keeping the law. If you look further down to verse 5, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, it's a, it's a New Testament church problem, isn't it, really? I mean, when you look back, this is 2,000 years ago. What is it? Yeah, that, that doesn't apply anymore. Sure, it doesn't. But you see, what these Jews, when they came up with this solution, a solution which seems like a practical solution to a very pressing problem, when they come up with this solution, and nobody is saying that they did so with malice, 
You mean this is the ideal solution for to unite the church as one? Make everybody a Jew. It's not a problem, is it? But it is. Because the underlying issue here is far deeper than the racial tension that goes on between Jews and Gentiles. The real issue is, what must a person do in order to be a Christian? It's a very deeper, very much deeper issue. Now let me give you a practical example. When I was a wee boy, um, I was very close to my maternal grandmother. So close that my mother once told me that when I was a child, the only person I would allow to hug me was my maternal grandmother. And that actually went on. Do you know, I only learned to hug people about 10 years ago after my grandchildren were born. And that went on right the way through my life. I wouldn't hug my mum or my sister or, my, or, or anybody at a church door. I warn you of that. No hugging. But I would hug my granny. Um, and I still have her wee New Testament in a drawer beside my bed. It's a wee new tweet, black New Testament, and it's inscribed with her name, Jeannie Kirk, Saved by God's Grace, 1954, Ligonil Gospel Hall. One day, soon after I came to Christ, she confided in me. She said to me, Do you know, I would love your granddad to be a believer, but he can't. I said, Why not? In those days, I had no understanding of anything to do with Reformed theology. I, I just thought everybody could come to Jesus. And, and, of course, we make this free offer of salvation to all, so why could he not come? Well, she said, because he couldn't give up the cigarettes. Now, here's the question. What do you have to give up in order to be saved? In fact, he did give up the cigarettes long after her death, but he gave them up because he he needed to for health reasons. So here's the underlying issue here. Do you have to do something in order to be a Christian? To be a Christian, do you have to have faith in Christ alone plus stop smoking? Do you have to have faith alone in Christ and do some form of good work? Do you have to have faith in Christ alone plus circumcision? Faith in Christ alone plus the law? I remember one time a more sensible man told me, a preacher, uh, about after a gospel meeting, someone said to him, uh, will smoking keep me out of heaven? And his reply was to the man, no, but it'll get you there all the quicker. That's certainly true. Now, this is fundamental stuff. So I want you now to turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 13. I did ask you to keep your finger or keep your, keep your little Bible ribbon in Galatians. So we should be able to find it quickly. Galatians, chapter 3. And verse 13. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says when he's writing. Because with a lot of 
what happens in Galatians refers to what's happening in this situation. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if confirmed, no man disannulleth it or added to. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, unto thy seed, which is Christ. Paul always taught that we are saved through by grace, through faith alone. That there is nothing that we can do to merit salvation. In fact, I would say that if we add anything of our own works to our salvation, then we take away from the completeness of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we render our approach to God invalid and worthless. Now someone will say, but didn't Jesus say to the woman in John 8, go and sin no more? Wasn't that a precondition for salvation? No, it wasn't. He did say that to her. But our repentance and our good works and our obedience and our care for our body and for ourselves and for others is a response to God's free gift of salvation. It is never a means to earn it. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have that amazing verse. By grace you have been saved by, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now let's go back to our text. Let's go back to Acts chapter 15. But let's keep our fingers in Galatians. So we've got this solution proposed. Certain men came down from Judea and said, here's the solution to the problem. We'll circumcise all the men and we'll give the women a series of ritual washings and from now on they'll keep the law and everybody will be happy because we'll all be the same. Sounds reasonable. I mean, I always thought that if every Christian was just a clone of me, then there wouldn't be any problems in churches at all. Sure there wouldn't. But the problem is that we're all different. We're all stones being built up into a spiritual house. And the solution is not that simple. And there must have been a huge row about this. Because in verse 2 it said, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem. There was a huge row. It wasn't a small matter. There was dissension. There was dispute. And again, Paul later writes about this. Go back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. Listen to this. When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. 
For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews disassembled themselves themselves likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and, and, and not as do the Jews, why compelest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are the Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles. See, the teaching of these Jews that had come from James was a grievous heresy. Remember that in his first missionary journey, Paul had visited Asia Minor. He'd been in Galatia. He'd established churches there. And the effect of this kind of teaching was at some time being felt very strongly there. If you go back to Galatians chapter 1, And to verse 6, you'll see what I mean. Here's Paul writing, not very long after this incident, writing to the Galatian church and saying, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ, For though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Uh, Do you know, if I was to say that in modern day English, you would be offended at the way Paul spoke. What was it about this heresy that was so abominable? What was it about this heresy that's in chapter 15 of Acts and verse 1? What was it about this teaching? It was that this teaching was that simple faith in Christ is not enough, that it must be accompanied by something that you do, by your works. It is the most basic error of all. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14. Again, that the blessing of Abraham may come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the spirit of faith. Covenant promises come through Christ alone. Chapter 2 and verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jew, why compel thy, why compel thy, uh, 
the Gentiles to live as do the Jews. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Every false religion is based on something that you must do to achieve eternal life or completeness or nirvana or whatever they call it. Only gospel Christianity holds out that there is nothing that you can do that Christ has done it all for you. It has all been done. It is accomplished. It is finished. Now this notion of salvation by grace plus faith plus works is so alluring that in the book of Galatians um, even we, re- we read that even Barnabas wavered it's so easy for a Christian to fall into that trap and how dangerous that is for Paul would argue the truth face to face with Peter, accuse him of complete hypocrisy. So dangerous is this error that people's eternal souls are at stake and that always makes Paul angry. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, here is this plea with the Galatian Christians, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. But I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. And Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. You try to get to heaven by your own works, even your religious works, then grace does not avail for you. So how do we deal with this deadlock before we finish? Because it looks like this great disputation at Antioch is going nowhere. Paul is bravely withstanding the Judaizers, but they're digging their heels in. And of course, Peter and, and even Barnabas are wavering. And they're convinced, these people are as convinced that ever, that any Gentile who wants to be a Christian must add works to their faith. There's only one solution, and that is the solution that is always given in the church for when there's a disputation like this. They must follow the form of church discipline prescribed by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. So, they determined... Verse 2, and we're back in Acts chapter 15. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem onto the apostles and elders about this question. Jesus had taught his disciples that they were to settle disputes between believers. If that wasn't happening, they were to bring together some witnesses. And if that what didn't work, they were to take it to the church. So Paul and Barnabas and some others 
must go to the church. And these people had come from Jerusalem. And they must go to Jerusalem where they will argue their case before the very first great council of the church. The year is AD 49. And as they go, they focus on the wonderful grace of God. It tells us that they made their way, verse 3, they passed through various parts of Phoenicia and Samaria and all the way down towards Jerusalem. They talked about the the conversion of the Gentiles and it caused great joy to all the brethren. They made great use of their their time as they journey, as they travelled. They do an impromptu deputation tour. They visit groups of believers all along the road and they spread the wonderful news of what the Lord has done in the missionary fields. Four, verse four. And they were honest and sincere with their case. When they came to Jerusalem, they were warmly received. Look at what it tells us. When they come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that the Lord had done with them. And finally, this evening, and we have to continue this, God willing, next week, the source of the controversy becomes unmasked, to use a modern term, Verse 5. And there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Do you know, it's really hard for us as believers to keep our old sinful nature in check, isn't it? We need to be mortifying the flesh. The church of Jerusalem was not homogenous. They were like those churches elsewhere uh, throughout the known world at that time. They were all different. They were like stones in a dry stone wall. They come from all parts of society. And some of the people who had been born again and brought into the church had in their old sinful state been Pharisees like Paul. People who for years prior to their conversion had been enslaved to legalism, enslaved to the law, and are finding it hard to let go of their old sinful nature. Their souls have been saved. These were Pharisees who believed. It tells us that in verse 5. There arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. These were believers, Christians like you and me. But they're finding it hard to let go of their old past. Now don't tell me that there's not things in our past that we find hard to let go of. Because we all know that sometimes our past catches up with us. Sometimes we react in ways that are unbiblical and ungodly because it's part of our past. Because we've been conditioned by our parents and our society. So their souls had been saved, they're born again, 
They're part of the church, but their mindset, what we would call nowadays their worldview, is still needing some work. They still need to be taught. They're young Christians. And we're all the product of our culture and our early life and our educational influences. Do you know that's why it's right for Christians to be concerned for our present generation of young people? Because of the pressure of secular society, because of liberal education, because of the influence of sexual liberation. Because when they go to university, they're going to be taught by Marxist university professors. And all of those things, all of those ideas are being fed into their minds. And they're all taking their toll. And they need solid teaching and training in the word of God. And not just a diet of youth ministries. So here's some Pharisees who still need some work. Even though they're Christians, their old mindset is still with them. can't be a Christian unless you submit to the law. Faith plus works. That's as far as we can go this evening. But at least tonight we've set the scene for the first General Assembly, the Council of Jerusalem, where the church will meet to discuss this very, very urgent matter of business. Can people who are not part of the racial group known as the Jews believe in Jesus and be saved without becoming Jews first? So next week, God willing, we'll go to part two. And we'll see something of the debate that takes place in that great council and some of its conclusions.